right, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Job, chapter number one. Job, chapter one. We'll share together in the second half of last week's message and the conclusion to our series on marriage and family and the gospel. We looked last week at the first five verses of Job chapter number one and had the opportunity to observe certain attributes of Job's character worthy of emulation. We even talked about what a rare treat that is in the scripture and the danger of modeling our lives after Bible characters whose names aren't Jesus. But Job is commended to us here as a praiseworthy man, a man who is blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. Whereas most of what is said concerning Job is just plainly stated by the narrator of this episode in his life in verses 1 through 5, what we'll see in those verses that we'll have the chance to look at together this morning are these character attributes on display in real-life application. We get the opportunity to peer into Job's life and experiences and to see his devotion to God and family expressed within the context of suffering and great pain. The discernment, the wisdom of Job exercised even under the sorrow and heaviness of having lost his estate and his children, the discipline of Job to worship in the face of great tragedy. Job chapter 1 beginning in verse number 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, A lightning storm struck from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported. The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God with anything or for anything. Chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, One day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered, and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without just cause. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, he's in your power, only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? And throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Here's something I want you to look for in Job's interaction with his family as we study through these verses. This is the final point in last week's sermon. I want you to look for the dependability of of Job. He was a dependable man. And I want you to note that what we see modeled in Job is further modeled after the reliability, the dependability, the steadfastness, the faithfulness, the steadiness of our God. Early on for me in my walk with Jesus, and it remains this way until this day, one of the most endearing attributes of God's character is his steadfastness, his faithfulness. I don't know what the people around me are going to do in the next five minutes. I don't know even what my family is going to do in the next five minutes. To be perfectly honest, I don't know what I'm going to do in the next five minutes. But I know that come what may, tomorrow morning, there'll be new mercy for me through Jesus Christ. Because in him, there is no change, no variation, no shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that's a quality 
that we ought to seek to model. And I would say to those of us who are husbands and fathers, that's a quality that we have been called upon to model within the context of marriage and family. That we would be the strength and the stay, the stabilizing force within the marriage and within the home. This is modeled in some powerful and beautiful ways in the example of Job in our passage. And I hope that it will turn your mind to reflect upon the steadfastness of God's faithfulness in your life as the matchless heavenly father of his children. Verse 6. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? And Satan responds, in essence, prowling about as a roaring lion, seeking whom I may devour. Satan is looking out for for those he might kill or steal from or destroy. And the Lord says to Satan in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Again, this is a strange interaction. God says, have you considered Job? Note here, please note here, that it's not Job's unrighteousness that qualifies him for the suffering that comes. It is Job's righteousness. If this principle is ever understood universally, It will be the end of the prosperity gospel forever. It's Job's righteousness that qualifies him for the suffering that's just up ahead. Have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright, perfect in integrity. Satan answered the Lord in verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns. He will surely curse you to your face. Job says, God, or or rather Satan says, God, Job serves you because he has stuff. You've blessed him. And I would point out for you this morning that not only is this the logic of of Satan, this is the logic of the children of the devil. And it might just be that your season of tragedy and suffering are provided so that you can so that you can demonstrate your devotion to God in spite of great loss and tragedy, and that in and of itself might be the compelling factor in the hearts of the children of the devil that they might open themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan says, yeah, he worships you because he has a lot of stuff, and you've protected him, and you've kept him well, and you've kept him safe, but stretch out your hand and strike what he owns, and he'll curse you to your face. And so God says in verse 12, very well, Everything he owns is in your power. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself, so Satan left the Lord's presence. Just a couple of observations about what we've witnessed so far. One, Job is not privy to the conversation that we're now aware of. Job did not have the benefit of knowing this conversation that was happening in the halls of heaven. Neither do we have the benefit of understanding all of the inner workings of God's intent when dreadful things happen in our experience. We just don't get the benefit of knowing that. Now, what we do is we huddle together, 
and we might be able to trace some lines between this bad thing that's happened and some positive outcome, and we might even take note of three or four or five things when God is doing a million things simultaneously. And then there are times when we get together and we put our heads together, and in our imaginations, we're not able to come up with much, but at least there's some conclusion about how God might work, and I'm convinced that one day in heaven we might discover that God was up to something entirely different than what we were ever aware of through our suffering, whatever tragedy might have disrupted our comfort. That's one observation. Sometimes we cannot trace his hand, but we can rest confidently that he is at work for our good. Second thing that we see in our passage, please note, please, oh, please, oh, please note that Satan comes before God seeking permission to trouble Job in this way. Sometimes people get the idea that there's this battle out there in the cosmos between good and evil. And some days God wins and good things happen. And some days the devil wins and bad things happen. And that just could not be further from the truth. The victory has been won. Jesus has overcome the world. And Satan is on a short leash with a sovereign God who has gone on record and committed himself by promise that only that which serves our good and his glory can unfold in our life. Now, true enough, that does not mean that only good things will unfold in our life. That does not mean that the bow of evil cannot be bent against us. Often, dreadful things happen to the people of God. The people of God are slaughtered all day long, Romans 8 says. But God is superintending even the most dreadful things that happen to us for our good and for his glory. We're able to say on our darkest day with Joseph as he spoke to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's not that Satan is running free and wreaking havoc in our life apart from the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Only, only, only what can serve our good and the glory of his name can ever happen in our life. Now, what our passage is teaching is not only the steadfastness of God, but the absolute sovereignty of God over every aspect of our life. And you may be wondering at this point, what does this have to do with marriage and family? And what I would say to you is it has everything to do with marriage and family and virtually all of our interactions with the world around us, whether it be within the context of marriage and family or a chance encounter on the street. Because when you have embraced the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, there remains no room for anger, no room for frustration, no room for bitterness or unforgiveness, no room for impatience, when you embrace the steadfastness of God in his faithfulness and his absolute sovereignty over all things, that begins to be the lens through which, the prism through which we see all things, and it changes the nature of our conversation. It changes the nature of all of our interactions. How can you be angry with your spouse when God is in control of all things? 
How can, can you be frustrated that you didn't get in this season of life what you thought you deserved when God is in control of all things? How can we despair as though there be no hope when God, when God, when God is in control of all things? How can you throw up your hands in impatience with your children when God is in control of all things? This doctrine can still the tumultuous sea the lordship of Jesus over my life has often calmed the troubled waters and brought peace when there seemed to be no earthly reason there be peace. When I acknowledge in my heart that Jesus is Lord over all of my life, it has a way of stilling chaotic, tumultuous waters. And we see this worked out in Job's experience. Look to verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported. Let's just pause for a moment. Did, did y'all pick that up? Do, do you remember last week's text? What it was about his children that concerned him so? There was something that his kids did that made Job afraid that doing that is going to make them susceptible to cursing God in their heart. When they do this, there is potential that, that their standing with God could be disrupted. Satan knows where all the raw nerves are, and he has a knack for putting his finger right there. It is that this episode in Job's life begins under the very circumstances that struck fear in Job's heart the most. The Bible says one day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported a lightning storm struck from heaven. It burned up the sheep and servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. One messenger and a second messenger, and now a third messenger. As the other still speaks, the report is offered. The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. One, now two, now three messengers with reports of great disaster. And Job must have wondered, can it get any worse than this? At least until the fourth messenger began to speak. He said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And you wonder if Job heard anything else the messenger had to say. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Some of you have experienced the loss of a child. I cannot fathom that depth of loss. I don't, I don't want to, frankly. I cannot imagine the pain and the heartbreak that must come with that. Just to hear that kind of report is enough to move a hard heart. And yet Job experiences 
the loss of his estate, and the loss of not one child but ten in one fail, disastrous swoop. But his response is unlike what we might expect. In verse 20, the scripture says, Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head, he fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. Now let's unpack that for just a moment, because there's truth in what Job says here. Naked I came from my mother's womb. I didn't have anything when I got here. And naked I will leave this earth. I won't have anything when I leave. The Lord gives. And to that we say, amen, amen, and amen. Doesn't the Lord give graciously? We would affirm that, right? We would celebrate that. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is the blesser above all blessers. The Lord gives, amen, and amen. But Job doesn't stop there. Job says, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Job is recognizing the lordship of God over his life. In other words, he doesn't see this season in his life as a time during which God has vacated the throne, taken his hand off the wheel or turned a blind eye. Satan hasn't snuck in and done something unaware to God. This is not a blip in God's focus over our life. God is actively involved even in the unfolding of these disastrous events for Job's good and for God's great glory. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Uh, several years ago now, five, six, seven, eight, they all sort of run together. I was preaching a funeral service for a child. And uh, I didn't know the family terribly well, but was obviously glad to be a part of the service. And there was a, a, a friend of the family who was to speak in this funeral, and that can often be the case. And that can often be a very scary thing for a pastor, too, by the way. That's a story for another day. And, uh, and, and so I was to speak after this friend of the family. And, and he said in the course of his uh, speech to the family, very well-intentioned. He meant the best, sought to comfort them, but this was the statement. I want you to know that the Lord did not take your child. Now, understand that what I'm about to say is seasoned with mercy and understanding and great compassion, but the thought that came to my mind, in fact, the thought that jumped in my heart was, if the Lord did not take her, I would love to know where she is. Our, our tendency is to run to some way to get God off the hook when some bad thing happens in our life or some bad thing happens around us. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't always understand what it is that God is up to. But I know this, and I know it well, that fundamental to what it means to be God is to be in control of all things. And he has sworn on record that only what is for our good 
only what serves his glory will unfold. What that means for us is this, that when it is its most painful, when suffering is at its height, we can rest assured that this will somehow serve our benefit and it will somehow serve his glory. We are not subject to the torment of Satan. He is bound by the good plan of God for our life on a short leash with a sovereign God who's promised that all things are working together for the good of those who love him, the called according to his purpose. I don't, I don't get this kind of newfangled theology that has God being God over certain circumstances and not over others. And I just got to tell you, it is a comfort to my soul to know when my heart is broken that Jesus is king. And somehow, someway, perhaps unknowable to me, he is at work in this moment of my life for my good and for his glory. And it settles my soul. When I'm anxious, when I'm troubled, when I'm burdened, when I'm bothered, when I feel as though as a man I deserve more than I've got. I'm reminded of his goodness toward me. His promise endures forever. He is steadfast and he is faithful. I don't deserve what I have, let alone any more than that. And Job rests in that, right? And then there's this statement in verse 22. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Now, the way that's often interpreted is that Job, just, he just always has it right, and he just plugs along, and he always says the right things about God's character, and he always understands his circumstances well. All I got to do is read the book of Job. That's not the way it works. In fact, he's on track here in chapters 1 and 2, but when those miserable comforters show up in the conclusion of chapter 2, they really sort of throw a wrench in things, and Job gets off track for a season. And it's not until God shows up at the end of the book of Job to ask, by the way, Job, where were you when I made the world as it is? Job, you know so much. Where were you when I made donkeys, donkeys, and giraffes, giraffes? Where were you, Job? And Job's reminded of his humanity, of his frailty, of how feeble he really is in the sight of God. And ultimately, Job is purified. Even in his blamelessness, Job is purified through this experience. This is not a statement that says Job has it all figured out forever. This is a statement that says that when Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, that Job is right. Similar statement is offered in verse 10 of chapter 2. Turn over for just a moment. When Job's wife comes to him and says, curse God and die, Job's response is, should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Even the adversity that we experience in life in some way comes from God. I'm not suggesting that he's to blame. Often there is very real evil intent behind the bad things that happen to us. But God is superintending the evil intentions of those who work against us. Even the evil intentions of Satan for our good and for his glory. We can really say with Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then here's this statement again. Through all this, Job didn't sin in what he said. In other words, Job is right again in the face of great loss. In a, in a time in Job's life, frankly, if Job had completely lost his mind, we wouldn't hold it against him, right? So some people want to be really critical of Job's wife in this passage. I read Job's wife with great sympathy. 
until you've lost everything you own and 10 children, don't go popping off or casting stones at Job's wife, right? If Job had completely lost his mind in this moment, we would understand that outcome. We would understand the weight, the break that might even come under these circumstances. But the scripture could not be clear. Job says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We will embrace good and we will embrace adversity because of the lordship of God over our life. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job was right. Job was right. Job was right. Job was a good theologian, even when he couldn't make it add up in his mind. In chapter 2, Job begins the experience of round 2. Round 1 was the loss of his estate and his children, but there is more to come. One day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered, and walking around on it. And the Lord said yet again, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him. A man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without just cause. Again, it is the righteousness of Job that qualifies him for suffering and not his unrighteousness. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord in verse 4. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bone, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, he's in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible bulls from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. It's really a pitiful sight. Job, still wrestling with the weight of having lost his estate and lost his children, has now been stricken with a disease that gives him boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He's sitting in ash, I suppose, for medicinal purposes to dry the oozing bowls that he would have bore and scraping those bowls with a piece of broken pottery, a piece of broken clay. He's there in this pitiful condition, and his wife approaches in verse 9. She says, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. He says in verse 10, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? I feel confident that we made mention of this in last week's message, but it's worth noting again. There's a great deal of difference between saying, Honey, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks and saying, You foolish woman. There's a world of difference between those two responses. Now, here's the thing that I find remarkably impressive about Job the man in the face of all of this. He's steady. He's dependable. He, he's the backbone. He's the strength and stay of his family. 
Now, I don't know where we ever got to this place of, of a version of masculinity that's so entitled that it forever wears its feelings on its sleeve. I don't know how we got to a place in society where we have men who are constantly looking for a reason to have their feelings hurt. And I'm not talking about cancel culture stuff and all of that. I, 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 mean, I mean men who will have their lip out today because they didn't get what they wanted to get for Father's Day. Or who have been angry this week because they thought they deserved respect in a certain area of their life from their children or from their family. I don't know why we ever got to this. Now, I, I get it. I get it because I feel it creeping up in me from time to time. But the call of God on our life is to be the stable, reliable, steadfast force within our family. When his wife is ready to curse God and die, Job says, honey, let's think about this thing. When his children are in rebellion, when Job's kids are doing what he wishes they would not do, he sins for them and prays for them and sanctifies them that they be right with God. I want that my interactions with my kids would be such that when they're in their season of difficulty, when they've done what they should not do, that they wouldn't say, don't tell my daddy, but they'd say, call my father. That's the kind of posture that we're to have towards our... Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to get wore out when I find out what they did, but that's, another, that's a whole other deal. It ought to be that as husbands and fathers, we are a safe and stable place for our wives and for our children. And Job models that beautifully here in our passage, even under the kind of circumstances that would lend themselves toward our excusing his misbehavior had he left the farm. If Job had gone the wrong way, if Job had been in error, how could we really hold that against him? And yet in spite of everything that's happening, Job is steady. Job is steadfast. And I'm going to tell you why. Job is steady and steadfast because of the, the doctrinal understanding, the very theological concept that we've talked about this morning, the lordship of God over every aspect of our life. He's resting in that. The first thought that comes to Job, Job's mind at the loss of everything he has is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Now, sometimes, and especially within the context of discussing marriage and family, we can wonder how it is that, that people or families that say all of the right things, their confession is right and accurate and orthodox. How can it be that those families can struggle in such significant ways when it comes to marriage and family? And I'm going to tell you how. One, we have mastered the ability to speak with theological precision in spite of what we truly believe in our hearts. If you hang around church long enough, you'll be trained in how to say the right things to the right people at the right time and in the right place. And that may or may not be an accurate reflection of what you truly believe in your heart. You want to know what a man believes? Don't ask him. Just observe him in action. He believes what he acts upon. Everything else is just religious talk, right? Watch what he does, and you'll find out quickly what his true convictions are. Now, here's the deal. What you believe influences the way you think. This is psychology 101. 
And what you think influences what you do. And what I'm saying to you this morning is this. If you can settle in your heart and soul, I don't mean superficially in that way we've been trained to talk and think about God. I mean deep down where it matters. That place that you reach for first when the estate is gone and the children are dying. I mean if you can establish this truth deep down in the very heart of your soul that God is good and he is in control of our lives. Where is there any room for impatience with our children? Where is there any room for frustration with our spouse? Where is there room at all for anxiety or worry, no matter what's happening around us? The reason those sensations are felt, the reason those are the emotions that dominate our life is because we allow the whispers of the flesh to overwhelm our ability to hear the shout of the Spirit that God is good and He is Lord over our life. If you can settle this truth deep down where Job had established this truth in that place that you reach for when it's as bad as it can get, when there's nowhere else to turn, when your only recourse is the God of heaven. Oh, it changes the way we see everything around us. It becomes the lens, the prism through which we see our whole experience. Everything is regarded differently. God is good and in control of all things. And unless or until you lay hold of that in that deep down place that matters the most, you will continue to be driven and controlled by emotions that are generated by thoughts that have no basis in the realities of God's word. You will continue to be tossed about by every wind and doctrine until you have established these truths deep down in your heart, until you have been laid hold of by the power of the gospel. You will continue to struggle until your mind has been renewed by the power of the gospel. Your thoughts and consequently your actions will continue to be patterned after the ways of this world, not the ways of our Savior. I think at the heart of our marriage and family issues is a faith issue. And the reality is that for many marriages, for many families, behind the walls of many homes, what you see acted out, the troubles, the difficulties, the challenges experienced, are the mere manifestation of a heart that is dead in sin and void of Christ. 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 Now, there are probably exceptions to that, right? We do such a good job of compartmentalizing our life. There, there are those who in their spiritual infancy come to Jesus in order for him to save them in that religious or spiritual compartment of their life without give, ever giving thought whatsoever to the notion that Jesus is not interested in being Lord over part of our life, but all of our life. Every compartment as you've divvied it out. 
The arm of God has not been shortened that he cannot save the soul, and the arm of God has not been shortened that he cannot save the marriage, and the arm of God has not been shortened that he cannot save the family. The arm of God has not been shortened that he cannot save the entirety of our life. Jesus did not come to bleed and to die for the salvation of one part of our life, but for all of our life, that we might know him and treasure him, that he might be preeminent in every facet of our life. His invitation this morning, his invitation is to rest in our conviction, to rest in what we know of him, that he has loved us and loved us with great depth, that he would bleed and die on our behalf, that in his resurrection we could have forgiveness of our sin, the power of the Holy Spirit. The invitation of the Savior is to come to him to come to him and to bring all of your baggage from every area or aspect of your life. Just bring it all. Bring all your junk. Bring all your pride. Bring all your arrogance. Bring all your stubbornness. Bring all your bullheadedness. Bring all your selfishness. Bring your family problems and your marriage problems and your problems with your neighbor. Bring your work problems. Bring all of your junk. Just pile it all up and bring it. But be prepared to leave it there at the cross of Calvary. The invitation is to come. It is to come. It is to come. And my, my caution to you again this morning is that you would not quench the work of the Spirit. The Lord stirs in your heart. Conviction by the Spirit comes. This must be addressed. This must be addressed. This must be addressed. And 10 minutes from now, you're having an argument about which Mexican restaurant we're going to eat lunch at. And I'm telling you, 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 you better stay there. You better stay there with the spirit of Jacob that says, God, we're not getting up from this place until we have resolved these issues. Because the outcome, if you quench the work of the spirit this morning, the outcome is likely to not be good for your marriage, your family, or your soul. I, I, I pray that you would believe with me this morning in the fundamental goodness of God in the fundamental lordship of Jesus over every part of our life, and that that for you would mean rest for your weary soul. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your word, for its truth. I pray, God, that you would help us to rest in the very thing we've discussed this morning. I know we've seen an example there, Lord, but that example is, is built up on a foundation of understanding your goodness, your grace, your provision, your sovereignty over all things. God, I, I pray that you would stir our hearts, God, that you would grant conviction that for the lost, Lord, you would whisper their name, God, that they would hear the name of the shepherd and answer the call in faith. I pray for marriages in trouble and families that are broken, God, that you would draw them near and save to the uttermost. Might our response to the preaching of your word in the next moments draw great glory and honor to Christ and to Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.